You're listening to Deeply Curious, a podcast about our ever-evolving philosophy of life and faith and the curious pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. In this episode, we are going to be making the case of why you should be a reader. Yes, my soapbox, in other words. (laughs) My name is Cody Jensen, and joining me, as always, from our Portland, Oregon studio apartment is the future mother of my children, Sarah Jensen. Maybe not. (laughs) Hi. She's going to be a future mother, just not the mother of my children. (laughs) Deeply Curious and all the art that we create is made possible by you and the members of the Jensen AV Club. This week's show is produced by Christian B. Schmidt, Greg Christie Jensen, and Jeff Stevens. If you would like to be a featured producer of Deeply Curious and gain deeper access and exclusive content, uh, check out our Patreon by going to jensenav.com club link is also in the show notes it's jensen dot club so you may have noticed that the intro music was different uh the intro itself was different um and i'm also going to be introducing a new segment today the first time we've ever actually had a segment right um typically we have our topic of discussion or topics of discussion and we just go for it um but i think i'm going to start uh with this episode we're going to have a segment called things i learned this week just like last week's episode where we talked about all the things we learned on the road Mm -hmm. in daily life i'm i'm i have that spirit of curiosity in my daily life so whenever i see things i looked it up sarah is the exact same way so we're constantly learning new things every single week whether those things are very trivial Mm -hmm. um or like fascinating interesting and life-changing mm-hmm. um there's nothing better than a good wikipedia rabbit hole yes. you know what i mean and a lot of times whenever we do have those you know big or fascinating life-changing ones those end up being the topic of discussion that that's typically yeah. the podcast is the thing that week that was uh more meaningful than the other things but that doesn't make the other things not interesting right um, so that is what this segment is things we learned this week. Yes. First thing on my list is um, cranes. Yeah. Not the bird, but the uh, construction equipment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if whenever they build buildings, they bring cranes in, and the crane helps the construction crew uh, with large, uh, heavy um, items Things. that they are using, yeah. and the crane moves them from point A to point B, um, or from the ground to way up on the skyscraper. You know, It struck me this week of... How the heck do they build the crane mm-hmm. in the first place? Because mm-hmm. they're huge. Um, it, you know, you can't just, I mean, you have to bring it in multiple trucks. So then how does the crane, you know, work? And so I looked it up and the simple answer is that a mobile crane is brought with the pieces of the big crane to build the big crane. Um, <laughs> it seems so cumbersome. <laughs> so it, how the, fir- the first crane would have had to been a small crane, mm-hmm. and that small crane helped build the next bigger crane, and then that crane helped build the next bigger crane. And now we're to the point where we have massive cranes. We have a pretty large mobile crane system that we can bring with uh, the big crane, um, and we can start to build it. So we uh, the mobile crane builds the, the huge arm that you see up in the air that's moving that around and, around. and uh, pulling the things up and down. Um, that part is built by the smaller crane and the first parts of the base. If it's a smaller crane, then uh, that's all that's needed. It just, it, the, the mobile crane builds it and it's done. But then there's these things called 
climbing cranes, I believe that's what it was. Um, essentially, the really tall cranes build themselves after the mobile crane builds it initially. Yeah. So this the smaller mobile crane builds it to a point that it can, and then the crane builds the tower of that it's sitting on on t- below itself. Yeah. Um, the way that works, if I was to paint a mental picture for you, is that if you were to have a small box. Um, and then you were to take a larger box and put it over the smaller box, but there's a door on the side of the bigger box that you can access the smaller box from. So the bigger box slides up the smaller box and then uses its own self to pull another smaller box up Mm -hmm. and then, uh, slide the smaller box in through the door of the bigger box. And then the, uh, construction workers, they just, you know, bolt it all in and everything. And then the bigger box continues to slide up now the taller, smaller box. And then it continues to do that until it's as tall as it needs to be. Yeah. Um, don't know if that actually painted a picture that you can visually see in your mind, but that fascinated me that cranes actually build themselves. It, it also just, I mean, I don't know if there's a better system. I feel like they would have come up with one, but it seems so inefficient. Like we need a mobile crane to build the crane that we're going to use, but then the crane, it can't build the whole crane. So the crane has to build the rest of itself. But a crane building itself seems like the most efficient system. Well, maybe, but maybe it's just the mobile crane situation. We need a, we need a crane to build our crane. That doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) This, uh, I, for some reason I never looked it up in New York city, but I thought about it a lot in New York city whenever I would see these, um, super skyscrapers being Mm -hmm. built and there would be a crane at the top yeah. of these super skyscrapers. And I'm like, one, how did it get up there? Yeah. Two, how are they going to get it down? Yeah. Well, now we know it comes apart into little tiny pieces that a mobile crane yes. built. So it also <laughs> disassembles itself in the same way. It, it yeah. pulls out the smaller boxes and then tells it's all the way down. Fascinating. So that was that. Um, second thing I learned was about popcorn. Um, I was eating popcorn and I thought, I was just thinking about, popcorn in its food form and then i was like i wonder like just thinking about like who first discovered popcorn and like if they if there was a really hot summer one year and while they were harvesting the corn they found these little kernels and they were Mm -hmm. like "Hmm, that's interesting and then let's eat it let's eat you know whatever (laughs) so i looked it up and i found something that i was not expecting popcorn is actually its own special type of corn called popcorn oh it's not an ear of corn, like mm-hmm. a regular, it's not a re- it's not the it's regular not corn. corn that you get on the cob, and then you eat. It is not those kernels just popped. It is a complete other corn called popcorn. Was it invented be, I mean. Did we make it? Was it natural? I, from what I understood, it was natural, mm. but because there are four different types of corn. Yeah. There is sweet corn. That's the corn we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the corn on the cob. All the corn we eat, that's what we call sweet corn. Then there's field corn. And field corn is used for livestock feed mm-hmm. and some food products. So it's not as like, it doesn't have the moisture content that the sweet corn does, but it has some moisture content. And then the flint um, corn, or was what we call Indian corn, is mostly used for decoration. Mm -hmm. So the four types of corn, the sweet corn, field corn, uh, flint corn, and then popcorn. Interesting. 
The U.S. is the biggest grower and consumer of popcorn. Well, that's not surprising. <laughs> so it, it looks just like an ear of corn, but but the kernel, like the popcorn, the unpopped popcorn kernels are make up the cob and mm. they pick it. And then the popcorn kernels themselves are dried until they have a 14% moisture rate, um, which is the optimal moisture for poppage. Do you know what's fascinating is how I how do people find these things? Like, you know, back in the day, how did someone discover that the popcorn pops into a thing you can eat? I, I It would have to be that it was growing and then it was it like a super hot summer or something. Right? <laughs> There's no way they'd be like, hmm, let's see what happens when we put this over but a fire. I guess if you if they were already cooking regular corn, well, that's they picked true. that corn and then they tried to cook it and all of a sudden it starts exploding and they're like, can you imagine out. being the first person who who figures it out though, and your food is exploding? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's terrifying. Also, the way the popcorn specific, like the way it is, that kernel, um, it has a little bit of moisture in there, and when that moisture hits a certain point, it builds enough steam to explode the kernel, mm-hmm. and essentially, it completely turns itself inside out. Yeah. So when you look inside of a kernel of popcorn. There's that little like brown little leafy things, the ones that get the things that get stuck in your gums. Mm-hmm. That is the, the outside of why I don't eat popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> that is the outside of the kernel. Yeah. But it completely explodes and turns itself and, inside out. And then it's soft and, then, and buttery. And then it's a wonderful, delicious snack. <laughs> but it is barely any calories unless you put a bunch of cheese and salt on it. <laughs> Which is what we Americans do. (laughs) And the last bit of thing that I learned this week was in interesting pop culture uh, news. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe not news, but the movie Joker came out Mm -hmm. and Joaquin Phoenix has been in the news. And then I was sitting there, I think I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I was just thinking about, I wonder if Joaquin Phoenix is his real name. Like, Mm -hmm. is that a stage name that he picked? Because Joaquin Phoenix. That's a crazy name. That's a nice name. Yeah. Um, So I, I just Googled it. Wikipedia came up and went down a rabbit hole because he has a crazy family history. Um, so he, his name was originally uh, Joaquin Rafael Bottom, like the opposite of top, Bottom. Um, and he was born in a cult because his parents had joined the Children of God cult um, and they had moved from California to South America, which is why Joaquin Phoenix was born in a South American country, but I can't remember which one it was, Um, but he's an American citizen because he was born to American parents. Uh, And they were traveling South America as a part of this cult. They had changed their names to like these biblical uh, crazy names. names. And then they uh, became disillusioned and left the cult. And that's whenever the family changed their last name to Phoenix to represent the Rebirth. rebirth of the family. Yeah. And so uh, they all became the Phoenix family. And uh, his siblings' names were an also interesting mm-hmm. thing because their parents were very creative. Um, yeah. <laughs> River Jude Phoenix, Rain Joan of Arc Phoenix, Liberty Mariposa Phoenix, and Summer Joy Phoenix. Yeah, the one that gets me is the Joan of Arc as a middle name. Yes. <laughs> And then, do you have three middle names? Is your are, is there your three middle names Joan of and Ark? Because it, it wasn't hyphenated. Yeah, but Joan of Ark is one 
thing word i guess you would say I right yeah um and then i kept reading and found out that they were they all of those kids were child actors two of them specifically river phoenix and joaquin um were up at very much up and coming river has been nominated for an academy award as you know well as joaquin but then i found out that at the age of 23 river died of an overdose uh, on recreational drugs and his brother joaquin uh was with him and so was his sister rain and he basically died in front of them yeah which is so tragic and that led to joaquin quitting acting um he came back uh a year later Mm -hmm. um but huge like you know yeah that's family thing with that like maybe the most traumatizing thing like i can't think of things that are much worse than that yeah so like have your brother die in your arms yeah like joaquin called 911 then walk the uh 911 tape was played on the news and on the radio and like uh, that's a whole other conversation yeah so that was I would just, I uh, made, very much made progress on reading all of his Wikipedia page. Yeah, he has um, a fascinating But life. the thing that stopped me was I uh, went down another rabbit hole of finding out that Joaquin Phoenix is engaged to Rooney Mara. And whenever I was looking at Rooney Mara's Wikipedia page, I found out that her name is Rooney Mara because she and her sister Kate are the great granddaughters of the Pittsburgh Steeler founder, Art Rooney, and the New York Giants founder, Tim Mara. What are the odds that both of your great-grandparents would be the founders of a, a Two team? rivaling NFL teams. teams years, uh, a couple generations removed. Yeah. Kids of those people met. Yeah. And then marry, then make children that are uh, now, both of their great-granddads are founding uh, NFL team. It's crazy. Yeah. What What are the odds? <laughs> it also led me down um, the Wikipedia page for the children of God. Mm. Pretty fascinating. The most fascinating and the most interesting uh, was that the cult believes that we should take the bride of Christ mm-hmm. um, scripture to be very literal and that oh. we should um, picture Jesus while having sex and while masturbating oh. um, and that men should picture themselves as women so as to avoid having a homosexual relationship with Jesus. Oh, wow. That is, there's a lot there to, <laughs> yeah. to unpack, <laughs> which we will not do. Yeah. So there's a fun fact for you. <laughs> so those are the things that made it on my list of uh, things that I learned this week. Hmm. Did you learn anything this week? Um, I did end up going down a crazy rabbit hole Wikipedia situation because of, well, actually, because of this book that we're going to talk about in the main conversation. But um, he had mentioned a story in the book that was a retelling of uh, an axe murder case that it's like one of the top three or four in American history for like sensationalism i guess or like because they were it was just so famous and crazy and kind of like the ted bundy it was like the first one that was videotaped and all that this Mm -hmm. was kind of the same thing but in the 1800s so it was um what was her name lizzie bennett (laughs) which i had never heard of before but i guess again it's a very famous case in american history so anyways 
her, there were like four or five people at home in the morning. It was like 11 a.m. And her stepmom and dad were both axed to death like 10 to 15 times each. And nobody, they they didn't know who did it. They couldn't prove the case. And everyone was pretty sure that it was Lizzie. But then she was indicted because nobody really could believe that a woman would do that at the time. And so it's a, I highly recommend going Mm -hmm. back and and researching it because it's really fascinating. But also don't do it at 2 a.m. like I did. (laughs) Because then I was pretty convinced that there was an axe murder in our apartment all night. So that wasn't good. (laughs) It's it's like almost the beginning of a riddle that you have to figure out of like, there's five people in a house. Two of them are brutally murdered with an axe. Yeah. And nobody Nobody heard it happen yeah. or saw it happen. Exactly. And like, how it's also fascinating because the house was, again, this was in the 1800s. And so the houses had no hallways whatsoever. Like there were zero hallways in the entire house. It was all room. And so you could see everything from everywhere basically is what I understood. And so like, you didn't even have to walk up the stairs to see the upstairs, like it was all just open, I guess. Hmm. And so that's where the stepmom was murdered upstairs. And then the dad was murdered downstairs. It, it's fascinating. It was really fascinating. And they they couldn't find like the murder weapon. Well, they were pretty sure there was this one hatchet that was missing its handle. And they're pretty sure it was missing because it had blood all over it. But they didn't... I, the police botched the evidence, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that concludes the first ever segment of things we learned this week. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that any of it was particularly important, but oh, that's no, that, okay. <laughs> it, that's not the point. The point is to always be learning. Yes. But the meat of the thing that we've been learning this week is more about reading. Yeah, well, we watched the documentary series on Netflix about Bill Gates, and um, I have obviously had this opinion for a really long time. I've written about it. I'll, I've talked about it to literally any person who will listen to me, um, but in the documentary, I was reminded of it because Bill Gates was reading. He was carrying around a tote bag of like 20 books or something and And the tote bag always goes with him wherever he goes everywhere he goes and it's only full of books that's it and um it just like got me started thinking on tote bag doesn't even paint a mental picture of it it is a beach bag yes like it's like a structured bag like the 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 tote the big like one the big canvas tote bag that you take to the beach yes full of books and that goes with him everywhere and it just reminded me of this idea that Um, You know, you see it all the time, but like the most successful people are always reading and whatever. Um, But it's actually really true. (laughs) And they were saying he, well, first of all, Bill Gates is Bill Gates. Like he reads a ton, but I don't think that that should be an excuse for you to not read at all. And so I wanted to talk about kind of like why you should be reading and maybe even what you should be reading because that's also a soapbox of mine (laughs) but so the average person well technically the average person reads 12 books a year but that's highly inflated because of all of 
because of the avid readers. Mm -hmm. So really, the average person reads about four books a year. And I would honestly say maybe that's even a little inflated. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I read this article a couple months ago that even if you're an avid reader, which they define an avid reader as reading 80 books a year, which is wow. a lot. I mean, I don't read that. Like, that's a lot of books. Um, I, feel like, I feel like avid reader doesn't describe 80 books a year. I feel like super reader describes yeah, 80 books a year. Yeah, probably. But they had, they had the categories. Yeah. Um, but if you're reading, even if you read 80 books a year, you'll only read about 4,500 books in your lifetime, which is nothing compared to how many books are published. Like millions of books are published every single year. And so... Yeah, I mean, there's probably 4,500 books being published while we're recording this podcast. Yeah, like it's it's insane. Um, but that's just kind of like to give you a picture of like how many books are available to you and how many will not get to read, right? Um, but I think, I don't know, I think like I had this conversation a lot with friends or literally again anybody who will listen to me <laughs> about uh reading and how important i think reading is and and i hear it so often especially in i feel like our generation they say a lot well if i'm gonna read i just feel like i should read a nonfiction so that i learn something and i always have to bite my tongue and pretend like i'm not incredibly irritated by that statement <laughs> because i feel like there's nothing really wrong with reading a business book or an information book, a self-help book, something like that. There's nothing like really wrong with that. But if that's like the only information you're getting, then th there, I think there is something wrong <laughs> because it's not, that's not the point I think of reading. And, um, I read this book this week called, am I alone here? Uh, by Peter Orner. And, Basically, what he does is he writes, it kind of turned into a memoir about his father's death and uh, the divorce he went through with his wife, but it was all essays, and each essay was based around one specific story that he read that really, like, is important in his life in some form or fashion. And so um, I wanted to read, there's this quote in the introduction of the book and he says, a few years ago, I came across the word ekphrasis, ekphrasis. I'm not 100% sure how you pronounce it, and neither is he. It says, it took me a couple of dictionaries to track down what it means, which is essentially art that attempts to describe other art. At first, the word seemed pretentious, and I'm still unsure how to pronounce it, but I've come to see that maybe this is what I've been trying to do here, make some poorer art of other greater art as a means of explaining a few things to myself. And I really like that quote because I think that actually explains what the point of reading is. Like it's about explaining some things to yourself through art. Hmm. Does that make sense? And like sometimes I do, I think that we are searching for ourselves or maybe like we're searching for a, something to save us from ourselves. <laughs> but either way, I think that you can always find that in a book. And I think that's the point that people miss right now. Like, the, like mm -hmm. reading is in decline. It really, like, it's kind of um, terrifying how 
<laughs> the statistics of how little people are reading. And I just feel like it's just really important. Well, why do you, what is your reasoning for um, feeling that somebody who only reads nonfiction is not? Uh, doing everything they should. I don't think it, it's not about, like I said, it's not about not reading business books or self-help books or something like that, informational books. It's exclusively. It's exclusively because I think um, in my personal experience and from what I read of everybody else's experiences, those aren't the books that actually change your life. Like they give you some sort of information, which is great, but um like there's something to be said about being like rendered silent because you see yourself on the page of a book in a story. Mm -hmm. And like, I do think like there's a quote and I don't remember exactly how it goes or even who it's by, but it says something about like fiction is the way to get at the truth when the truth can't get to us or something like that. Mm -hmm. Basically it's about how when we are, we're too guarded a lot of the times as human beings, we're guarded. But when you get into a story without you even knowing it, your guard goes down because the story has in enthralled you, right? And so that's when truth in fiction can do its work and like actually teach you a lot more than you think a made up story is gonna teach you. Mm -hmm. And like fiction, whether it's novels or short stories or like he argues in this book, all stories are fiction because like we're all making up the stories of our lives. They're not, you know what I mean? Like, so even if you're reading like essays, memoirs, like I, I very much believe in, in reading essays, memoirs, biographies, po poetry, like people's stories, like when you get into them, like they teach you so much more about yourself. They teach you empathy. They teach you, um, I don't know the words. There's just like something so imperative about learning other people's stories, whether they are made up or real life. Like I've only ever changed my life because of somebody else's story. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? And that's why I think it's important. <laughs> yeah. The way that I would describe that, the reason that I think you should read nonfiction and fiction is because I think we should all be on a journey of gaining intellectual wisdom and gaining emotional wisdom. Yeah. And you rarely gain real emotional wisdom from reading a nonfiction, uh, like information book. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously a memoir or, you know, something of that nature, you know, that it is more story driven about biography, things like that is different, but, as far as a self-help book, people right. a lot of times people are like, uh, only, the only thing that you would read is something that is quote unquote self-help um, because you, you know, if you're going to read, you want to spend the time gaining that knowledge. But I think that gaining intellectual knowledge is only half of the equation because mm -hmm. we should also all be growing uh, in our emotional wisdom and our emotional knowledge. And whenever you read a fiction book, that story takes you somewhere. It takes you and it takes your emotions into a place that you may have never thought you could go or you're too scared to go and you wouldn't have began the book if you knew you were going to get there, mm -hmm. but the book took you there anyway. And once you're there, you gain personal insights into your own emotional consciousness. 
Yeah. And once you find that empathy, um, either you find yourself within the characters of a fiction book or the characters in a fiction book move you to the point of seeing other people in your life um, in in the uh, same painting of, right. of the fictional character, which allows you to treat those people with more empathy and understanding. Yeah, I fully agree. But I I would also argue that reading, it's it's not divided up by intellectual and emotional because I I firmly believe that fiction novels short stories or essays memoirs uh, biographies do offer intellectual knowledge as well as emotional knowledge um and that's the thing I think people don't actually understand mm-hmm. is that it's not it's not just about like oh I'm gonna escape and read a good story like it's not that at all right <laughs> you know um like in the in Am I Alone Here, uh, Peter says, stories, both my own and those I've taken to heart, make up whoever it is that I've become. And then he says, what I'm trying to say is that your way of experiencing the world is subtly and vastly different from mine. And these alternate realities, the world seen through the muck of billions of different brains, encompass much of the wonder and the freakishness of being alive. And I think that, like, that's exactly it. Every single person's experience is subtly but vastly different. And I think, for example, like, you are going to have words for something that I don't. Mm-hmm. And I I need those words to explain the subtle difference in my life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's the point of stories. So if you were to ask me, why do I read? Uh-huh. Um, my answer to that is... Because I, my whole life, I haven't been a avid reader. And if avid readers are 80 books a year, I haven't even been a reader. <laughs> um, but I haven't really valued reading for the majority of my life mm-hmm. so far. And within the last, I don't know, five years-ish or something, um, I have begun to appreciate reading mm-hmm. more and more. And the reason I choose to cultivate the love of reading in my life is because I have never seen a truly wise person who doesn't read. Yeah. And so in my life, I value more than anything wisdom. And I want to constantly be gaining wisdom and become more wise, if you will. Basically, it's in my pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. And in that, part of that is becoming a more wise and a more uh, emotionally wise person as well. Mm -hmm. And whenever I look at people, whenever I I see people that I look up to and see people that I want to be like, and I also see examples of people who are incredibly wise, they are always avid readers always always every time i've never once seen an example of somebody that i want to be like who is incredibly wise that says eh, i don't like reading yeah reading sucks i never do it i just prefer netflix and it's it's funny too because i think um you know in in our current uh culture or society in america the people we look up to are the the um business people the tech people the Mm -hmm. you know whatever elon musk bill gates all of them and they are all avid readers every single one of them but also if you look at like all of the artists all of the um people who are 
all of, all of the creatives, I guess, if you want to define it, like they're also all avid readers. Like every, you, you need stories. And I read this article recently about what all of the most successful people read, like what kind of books do they read? And the basic um, sentence, the, the synopsis is other people's lives. Mm-hmm. They're not, I mean, sure, like, is Bill Gates reading some information on something he's trying to learn? Yes, <laughs> of course he is. But like he's reading memoirs and he's reading biographies and essays and other people's stories. Mm-hmm. That's how you learn. And like that, I mean, that's just... Yeah, there was something that I heard um, more recently that struck me of that people say that there are not, there's no shortcuts in life. Yeah. But that is not true. There are shortcuts in life. And that is all of the previous lives that have been lived Mm -hmm. and written about into a book or written about themselves into a book. Mm -hmm. And whenever you are able to take somebody's entire life history, all of the things that they failed at and then succeeded at, you are able to, instead of going out and failing at all of the same things, you're able to pick up a book, read somebody's entire life history of failure, Mm -hmm. and not repeat those things. Boom, one shortcut. Mm -hmm. You add a thousand more shortcuts to that and think about, how much further along you will be in your emotional or uh, intellectual journey or just further along in your business, your life, your, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. Because if you started a business right now and you chose to not seek out any prior knowledge of business, it would take you decades and decades and decades to create a successful business because you're going to think, huh, this will probably work. You try it, you fail. You try, you tr- think mm-hmm. this will probably work. You try, you fail. It's a scientific process of just trial and error saying, oh, this part worked, this part didn't. But you don't have to do that mm-hmm. because somebody wrote about it in a book. Yeah. And so you read it and then you like, okay, let me try these things. And then you add knowledge on top of that by adding your own failures. And essentially that's because you didn't have enough time to read all the books. Um, so right. there's still going to be some failure. Also, I was reading... Um, uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau uh, this week and one of the things that he talks about in there is how um, he could graduate from college with a degree in navigation but none of that would have taught him as much as walking down the street and making a right turn yeah because the experience of navigating will ultimately um, teach you more about life than you know an entire you know, college course about it. So right. it's not like you can sit around reading a thousand books and then go out and be successful. Right. But you're able to um, use the experience of others as a shortcut in life and not make and avoid all of the big pitfalls and make all the small ones on the way. Yeah. Well, I think also if you actually sit back and think about like all of the nonfiction books that you've read, the business books, the self-help books, um, when you think about them, and all of the, you know, nuggets of wisdom that you've learned from them. <laughs> and then look at your life and see how zero have been applied to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I I mean, you're not actually like doing what you're, you should be doing anyway. Because, and I, I do think that there's something really special about uh, fig- like forgetting that you're 
reading and and like your heart and your brain are just like open to whatever knowledge is in the book and it actually does change you without you realizing it and i think i don't know there's just something really really important about that aspect of reading that a lot of people don't think about like it's not about being aware even necessarily that you've changed Mm -hmm. but you do change with every single book that you read and i don't know i just think it's really important yeah i I think well this may be the opposite of the thing you were just saying but the with the way you started it of uh reading a business book and not applying it i think that the argument here is not just to read but it is to intentionally read oh for sure yeah but at the same time to your point it is also the intentionality of getting lost in a book um is just as important as the intentionality of applying a nonfiction, you know. Yes, you know, I mean, I read book. like "Am I Alone Here?" The book I read this week is nonfiction. It's his, it's essays on his favorite stories. It, I mean, you know, I didn't get lost in it. I read it for a very specific reason. Um, but the book before that I read was "The Wind Up Bird Chronicle" by Haruki so Murakami, good. and I, I just got lost in it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, there's a reason to read every kind of book. I guess is what I'm saying. And I just, uh, it makes me really sad that nobody understands the value of it. And I just feel like maybe it's my life's mission to make everybody understand. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because Uh, it's not about, I mean, I read business books. I read, I have a whole shelf of self-help. Like now, to be fair, I don't really believe in self-help anymore. But I mean, you know, I have it. I think poetry does more good than self-help does. I think mm-hmm. memoirs do vastly more than a self-help book will ever do for you. But, I mean, I still think there might be a, a point for them, a reason yeah. for them. I would say my uh, argument for or against, I don't know what it is, of self-help books is we all do this, I, I myself included, of just picking up a self-help book and reading that and gaining that knowledge is so energizing. It really is. Because it's like, oh my gosh, yes, I'm going to do that. 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 And then you're done with the book and you tell everybody, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh my gosh, I just read um, Grit by, you know, Mm -hmm. I forgot her name. And uh, it's, you know, this, this and this and this. And then a week later, you're not really telling people anymore and you also haven't applied anything to your life. Right. And then you find... Uh, purple cow and you start reading it and you're like oh my gosh this is so amazing this is so amazing this is so amazing i'm gonna read this and apply this to my life and Mm -hmm. like that energy may be what it's worth yeah but anyways the point of me starting that rant was i think that if i could stop and pick one book and pick one chapter Mm -hmm. from one book and read it absorb it journal it and apply it Mm -hmm. and actually change what I'm doing in my life or my business or my, you know, whatever it is and try that chapter out, that would hold so much more value. Oh yeah. And be so much more life changing than even finishing the book. Yeah. Let alone reading. I have, I have probably five or six self-help books that I only read the first 30 pages, but the reason I like them so much is because in the first 30 pages, there was an idea in there that I really liked and I tried it and it worked. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't finish the book because, you know, I feel like I got what I needed. <laughs> but I, I, I also think that maybe my problem with like business and self-help books is that there's sort of this idea of like do X, Y, Z steps one, two, three, and four, and then you'll get this. And the problem is, is that I don't believe that. I don't think that there's a step-by-step program for every person to follow. I don't think one person's success is going to equal your success. I don't think the way that their life played out is going to be the way your life plays out. And because we're all individual, like there's so many factors outside of Mm -hmm. that, that you cannot control. And I think that you run into problems when you read a book that is overly instructional seven steps to becoming successful in your business or whatever. It's like, no, those seven steps are not going to work for me. Like they're just not, Mm -hmm. I don't really care how good the seven steps are. They're not going to work. What is going to work is reading somebody's life story and picking out the things that apply to you. Like I, I just don't, I don't know. It it yeah. kind of bothers me because it makes people it makes you feel like oh I just need to do these things and then I'll have it and that's right. that's not the case yeah I mean I think that all, not all but there is a genre of self help nonfiction that is predatory yeah in that they they are not um, actually going you are not going to have a million dollars by the end of the book that says how to make a million dollars right but you feel like oh, this is a book on how to make a million dollars and I'm going to like it. Yeah. I should read it. And you do. And there's a lot of great things in the book. That you're like, oh yeah. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I should do that. The, oh man, I need to tell Sarah about that. Whoa, that's cool. And maybe that has value. And yeah. it, it doesn't mean that those things are invaluable in general, but it's just the, the marketing factor of that. We feel like if we follow these seven steps, then or going to have a million dollars. Right. When in reality, that person um, got a small million dollar loan from their father to start out. Right. Um, And (laughs) in reality, that person has a completely different life story than you do Mm -hmm. that led them to the spot that they're at, and you can't replicate that. Right. So the steps that they took, one, probably involved more luck than they're giving it, Mm -hmm. and two, have a completely different life history. And so uh, it's hard to say that those types of books are the ones we should be giving the most time and weight to. Right. Um, But we tend, I feel like as non-readers, we tend to gravitate towards those because they're most practical. And we're like, oh, if I'm going to read, then I should read a book that applies, you know, to making my life better. And it also is succinctly, said succinctly enough that I can understand it and I can apply it to my life. Right. But those types of things typically don't change our life to a massive degree. So then we're stuck in this perpetual cycle of, well, I mean, that's not like that book did me any good. So why should I even read, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. Don't know if that's an actual thing that happens in people's lives, but I think it's probably more subconscious, yeah. but it's true though. I do. I feel like when you run into, you know, non-readers, their typical response is, well, if I'm going to read, it's going to be nonfiction. It's going to be a business book or a self-help book that, you know, tells me how to live a better life. And I just think that it's, that's so far from the truth. (laughs) Um, Also, I think like one of the things that reading has taught me is that um, 
Well, there's, so there's a quote uh, by, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Anyways, or maybe Kurt Vonnegut. They both have a quote that's very similar to each other, so I always get them confused. Either way, it's great. (laughs) It's basically saying like, um, the point of all literature is to learn that your longings are universal longings and that you're not alone. Like every person who has ever lived has felt everything that you feel. And I think that is what like reading has taught me. And I feel like, um, so am I alone here by Peter Orner was, he wrote it in 2016. And there's this quote that I feel like is kind of my whole point on reading uh, fiction, novels, or short stories. Um, He says, Now more than ever, I feel under siege by opinions masked as answers. I'm finding much of the talk I overhear in the cafe, on the street, in newspapers, magazines, online, and in too many books, more and more exhausting. Is it me, or is there an epidemic of glib conclusions going around? Since when is everything so explainable? I've been rightly accused of early onset curmudgeonry, (laughs) but since when did everything become so coherent? Stories need no why. They only need to breathe a little on the page. And I think like that's exactly it. Like when you actually, I know we all want answers. Like we all want clean cut. We all want concise. We all want the self-help that is do A, B, C, and then you get D, right? But the truth is that life is not that. And I think the beauty of reading a novel or a short story or even essays and memoirs because they're real life, like the beauty of reading a story is that you see that there are no clean cut answers and that every person has struggled in exactly the way that you are struggling. And like somehow that's really comforting. (laughs) It's supposed to like you would think that it would feel like – more suffering (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know you'd think you'd be you'd be like a little more like upset about it but it's actually really really comforting to understand that every person on the planet is struggling in the exact same way that you are i heard a quote this week um that uh, c.s lewis Mm -hmm. he says that the basis for all friendships are wow you too yes yes exactly That's exactly it. Like nobody, which is also my argument for the fact that there's no such thing as oversharing. (laughs) Um, Because again, there is nothing better than somebody saying something that resonates with you. And then you saying, oh my God, me too. I feel that too. I think um, Peter Orner said, those who believe they've cornered the market on wisdom are the ones to steer clear of in literature, hmm. politics, and life. Give me the confused, the mistake ridden, the still trying to figure it all out. Because no matter how wise you might be in one area, you're going to be completely, mm-hmm. completely ruined in another. <laughs> like nobody has everything figured out, you know? And it's nice to know that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think is, I don't know, the point of literature. And I think the reason we're all, maybe I, I hesitate to say this fully, but I think maybe the reason we are where we are is because nobody is reading literature. Like you would just understand so much more about humans if you read stories, you know? I just, 
I, don't, I think it's the answer for everything, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that a major factor in the uh, current climate of emotional climate um, yeah. is lack of empathy. Um, and so I don't, I wouldn't say that not reading is a cause of what where we are, but reading couldn't hurt. Um, and no, that- I could definitely see that if people would actually pick up books and read other people's stories that are about people that are different than themselves, they would um, increase their capacity for empathy, mm-hmm. thus allowing them to look at people across the aisle or you know across the street and see somebody closer to that looks like them than what they had previously thought. Yes, exactly. Like I don't, I wouldn't say necessarily that (laughs) the reason we're where we are is because we're not reading, but I do think that a solution can be to read. Mm -hmm. I really do. What's the first book that comes to your mind that changed your life the most? Um, changed my life the most. Potentially, My Name is Asher Lev by Kaim Potok. I read it in 2016 or the very, no, January, 2017, um, right after the election, I was going through like a whole bunch of, uh, religious or faith and art questions because I don't, I didn't agree with a lot of, um, what conservative Christianity was saying, but I didn't know you know, how to talk about it without being mean or, you know, whatever. Anyway, and that book is about uh, Asher, who's a young Hasidic Jew living in Brooklyn in the 1950s post-war. And it's about him being an artist and how that is in basically direct conflict with his faith because you don't, I mean, you just don't do that. And about how he couldn't help it. And his art eventually leads him to uh, commit blasphemy on his faith. Or what some would, I guess, mm-hmm. define as blasphemy. What his community defines yeah. as blasphemy. And, um, but he made the art anyway. And he actually had to... Oh, I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler. Sorry, guys. <laughs> he eventually left his community. He never left his faith. He found another faith community... Um, he moved to Europe to uh, live and work on his art there and um, never left his Hasidic Jewish faith. Um, but I think it's just a really beautiful portrayal of like the conflict between faith and art. And it probably changed the way I think about it. I mean, vastly. I mean, it's completely different than what I would have thought about it four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful story. What is... Another... I have one more. I read this book in 2016. And it's called Isn't It Pretty to Think So? It's by Nick Miller. It's not super known. He's only written the one book. Um, but it's a book about this guy who, uh, you know, is find, trying to find himself, basically. And um, it's really written really well. It's like a modern-day great Gatsby kind of there's that the idea of the green light the longing that the green light uh kind of symbolizes in the great Gatsby is very much what this book is about and isn't it pretty to think so and it's um it's really beautiful it's just a modern day telling it's really great what's a like a novel that either changed your life or that really stands out 
Um, I read this book uh, this year. It's called Fear of Flying by Erica Jong. Um, it was written in the 70s, but it's set in the 50s in like Freudian psychoanalysis times. And it's all about what it's like to grow up female in America. And um, the protagonist is a 29-year-old and she has been married all of her 20s and she wants to be a writer. And um, it's just kind of everything that all of the subtle things. I know that like generally speaking, white women aren't like, you know, oppressed oppressed in the way that a lot of other people are. Um, but there are a lot of subtle things that I think maybe even I didn't realize growing up, you know, um, like the fact that I can't walk outside at night by myself. Like, that's just the truth. I didn't even realize that <laughs> that that bothered me, you know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of small little subtle things that women have to go through in, on a daily basis. Um, the fact that, you know, like when you're in the workplace, men say, oh, you're so much prettier when you smile or, oh my gosh, I can't, you're smart. Like, like it's a surprise. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's, those are words that have been said to me. And like this book really addresses all of those things and does it in such a phenomenal way. It's, it changed my life. It's amazing. Definitely top five books ever. Sounds like we might need to do a Fear of Flying uh, podcast. I actually think we might have. Oh. Now that I'm thinking about it. Did we? I think I, I think we did a podcast about growing up female in America. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe it doesn't help your memory, but it does help your brain. Um, I wanted to mention the idea that like a reader's brain is actually different than a non-reader's brain. And um, so I looked at this article to kind of see like what the difference was. Obviously, it's like um, exercise for the brain, right? That's kind of what they say. Like, it's just like all those mind games you play and, or brain games you play and whatever. But um, there's actually a process of like the way it, it changes the brain connectivity and like how heightened it is when you're reading because your brain is like decoding everything in a story uh, without you even really realizing it and making new connections and um, understanding complex ideas and things like that. Um, this says, the reading brain can be likened to the real-time collaborative effort of a symphony orchestra with various parts of the brain working together like sections of instruments to maximize our ability to decode the written text in front of us. Um, this Marianne Wolf explains uh, in her book, she says, Human beings invented reading only a few thousand years ago, and with this invention, we rearranged the very organization of our brain, which in turn expanded the ways we were able to think, which altered the intellectual evolution of our species. Our ancestors' invention could come about only because of the human brain's extraordinary ability to make new connections among its existing structures, a process made possible by the brain's ability to be reshaped by experience. And so all reading is, is an experience. Mm -hmm. And so you're literally reshaping your brain. And it's, it's just insane when you are on a reading streak and like how you think and talk and act mm -hmm. versus when you're not. Um, it involves reading itself, involves several brain functions, including visual and auditory processes, phonemic awareness, fluency, comprehension, 
and a lot of other like neurological things. It literally changes your brain in a positive way. And I just think we forget that too. It's not all about, Mm -hmm. you know, everything. It's about the fact that like you're, you're actually experiencing a new thing when you're reading. Yeah. You're not escaping, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah. Making new connections and creating new neural pathways for different ways of thought. Um, And that is one of the things that I think is, I mean, maybe the whole basis for reading, if you were to boil it down to like a scientific reason per se, or maybe that's more psychological uh, than scientific. But anyways, that just if your brain is stuck in certain neural pathways and you constantly, you're always thinking in in that path, it's hard to think outside of that path and Mm -hmm. make new connections. And I was reading even a book this week that um, we're definitely going to do a podcast about next week. And as I was reading it, I it, I began to make new connections that I had never previously made before. And before reading it, I wouldn't have been able to get there. Yeah. Because I was thinking about it one certain way. And no matter how I tried to think about it, it always came out with the same general conclusion. Right. But reading the book and the intellectual argument it made against myself was like, oh, there's another path. Mm -hmm. And I went, you know, followed that. And now I'm able to think about it in multiple different ways. Yeah, that's called fluid intelligence, which is another thing that reading. It's my Instagram bio. Enhances. (laughs) It says it's the ability to solve problems, understand things, and detect meaningful patterns. Mm. And that's the important thing is, I think, detecting meaningful patterns. Whether you can really articulate it or not, that's what your brain is doing. And so you're just like creating. It's why like reading is really important for people who are dealing with depression, I think. Well, it's like kind of the thing that saved me. And so Mm -hmm. um, because it just does that without you even realizing. (laughs) Like you could read a self-help book about depression all day and like tell yourself like, okay, I'm going to do this and like try and find the willpower. But willpower isn't there like yeah. there's actually a book that i haven't read yet but it's it's about kind of how willpower doesn't exist mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this construct we made up um and whenever you're reading fiction or a story i guess i should say when you're reading a story your brain just does it for you like without you even really being conscious of it mm-hmm. whenever you mentioned uh reading streaks a moment ago it reminded me that i should have put a uh disclaimer at the very beginning, but I guess the disclaimer is coming now at the end. Um, <laughs> that uh, at least for me, Sarah is speaking as much to me as she is to everybody, um, <laughs> and I I am in this conversation as a uh, knowing party that mm-hmm. I very much do not read nearly as much as I want to, mm-hmm. um, and I know why and. I can't shake the why because oh, I'm the same way. I I was on a reading streak um, for the beginning of this year and I was reading at a higher pace yeah. than I had ever previously read. Mm-hmm. And by the June, halfway through the year, I had, I think, already beat my last year's record or yes. come close to it. And then we moved. Yeah. And that ruined my uh, habit and my habit no longer 
uh, my daily habits no longer included reading because I went on a road trip for an entire month and then we moved here and had an entire month of like working on the apartment and doing all this stuff and I didn't make myself get back into it. And then something else replaced that neural pathway yeah. where reading was, was Netflix or any, yeah. you know, screen time. Mm-hmm. I was very, very good at, at screen time the first six months and then I have progressively gotten worse and I feel like I'm maybe coming out of it now because I'm starting, I've read a couple books again, um, just finished a second book since we moved here. And so I do feel like I'm getting back on a streak and I'm able to kick the addiction to screens yeah. uh, or not kick it, but I'm work on it. I'm managing it. Yeah. Um, and I want to get much, much better because if I saw a tweet this week that I retweeted and um, it said, you should be spending more time reading books than you do reading Twitter. And yes, I felt a little bit attacked um because i was like i won you're on twitter i saw the tweet so i was on twitter (laughs) when i saw it um but then also that made me just think about how at the end of my year or the end of my life what do i want Mm -hmm. do i want to say that i you know was able to read all the books that i wanted to or i was able to read you know x thousands of books or do i want to say well I spent, uh, a th- a, you know, seventeen hundred hours. hours on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and you know, so basically, whenever I uh, do my time budget mm-hmm. and I allocate where my time went, I want to be proud of that. Yeah. And right now, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time when I've been fully proud of it, but definitely not right now. Right now, mm-hmm. I definitely feel that there is like screen time is not something I'm proud of, but is also so highly addictive that it's really hard to remap your brain in order to say like, I would rather wake up and grab a book than wake up and grab my phone. Yeah. It's hard. Also, it's just like anything else. It takes, uh, work and, uh, creating a habit. Like it's kind of amazing how hard it is to get into reading and then to not be able to stop once you're in it. Mm-hmm. Like like you read much more and much quicker when you get into reading. Like a few books in, yeah. you start finding your stride. And like that's when you really accomplish uh, a good amount of reading. But yeah. it takes a few books for you to really like make that habit. Yeah, I read a thing this week that was talking about how we've all heard that it takes 28 days to form a habit. Um, and basically what this uh, person, I don't remember what their cred- credentials were to make them have an authority on this, but they did. Um, <laughs> they said that that's BS, mm-hmm. that 28 days um, is what how, the amount it takes to like begin yes. to create a habit. Yeah, you can't do it and, for 28 days and then call it good. Um, a, they, basically, it was that it actually takes closer to six months to fully yeah. develop a habit in your life yeah that i yeah i mean because if if you take an average reader i mean you're not going to read like a book a week or even two weeks maybe you know Mm -hmm. especially depending on the size of the book it's going to take you maybe three weeks to to a month and do that two or three times before you you know 
really start to prefer, like you can feel your brain preferring to pick up a book. Mm-hmm. And then you have to convince yourself not to turn on the TV anyway. You have to go through that. Right. <laughs> you know, you have to listen to your brain first. It's yeah. hard. When the, the beginning of this year, whenever I was actually in a reading streak, I felt that. I felt the shift go from where like, you would ask maybe, do you want to watch something? And I would legitimately be like, no, I want to read. Like I yeah. I wanted to read. I was like longing for it. Yeah. Versus I don't feel the longing for reading yet. Uh, I just more feel like um, I shouldn't watch something. So I right. should read. Exactly. Yeah. But it really does um, happen. And you really do get on a good streak. Yeah. And it feels wonderful. It does help to... Uh, have a book that you enjoy oh picking the right this i get a lot of anxiety from this so i try really hard not to think too much about it but picking the right book at the right time is so important Mm -hmm. it's not just about like reading a book you gotta have the right book it makes a difference it's like when i read fear it's like all of my favorite books are because they were the perfect book at the exact time i needed it Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's really important But don't let that overwhelm you. (laughs) Um, My suggestions, how I pick out books, I don't look at lists ever. Just uh, throw out a couple of little uh, suggestions for you guys. Don't look at lists of books because you can never tell, really. What I do is I go to a bookstore. I, I Usually it's like two hours, you know, whatever, on the weekend. I go to a bookstore and I pick up any book that intrigues me. I am very much a person who judges a book by its cover. Sorry. Um, if there's something that stands out to me, I pick it up and I read the – I don't even read the whole the whole synopsis of it. I just read um, – sometimes I read like the last paragraph because it will tell you uh, what the themes of the book are. And then if that intrigues me, I buy it. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I think like just I I just wouldn't always necessarily read what's on the list. Now, have I read books that are on the list? Absolutely. Were they the perfect book for the perfect time? Yes. I just don't think it's the only way you should read. Mm -hmm. Okay. well, that um, should conclude this uh, conversation. Our argument, uh, Sarah's argument on why you should be reading that I agree with. Um, yeah, I hope it made sense. If you enjoy the show, we would love if you would give us a review on iTunes or share a favorite episode with a friend. You can also partner with us by joining our Patreon at JensenAV.club. Our intro music is provided by Musicbed. Learn more about Musicbed's unlimited music subscription plan at music.codyjensen.com. Sarah and I also publish lifestyle and travel films on uh, every week on YouTube. Um, I'm assuming you know that, <laughs> but we might be have some people who are listening now who don't know that we actually started on YouTube, and you can check out our stuff at YouTube.com/slash Cody Jensen. Thanks for listening to Deeply Curious, and we will see you next week. <laughs>